Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today's quote is from the commentary to the Charyapitika, which means it's not actually the Buddha's teaching. It's, uh, it's not the Buddha himself, it's not his words. It's describing um, the quality of, uh, of love from the point of view of someone trying to become a Buddha, which means with the aim to the aim to become enlightened by one's own by one's own power and then um, teach a world that is un unaware or un uh, unable to practice the you know, unfamiliar with the Buddhist teaching you know, we teach in a time when there is no Buddha the Buddha. That's the uh, what the Charyapitaka is about. to become a Buddha one needs love and he says because love they say because love is the basis of compassion and compassion is really the basis of Buddhahood and what they mean by that is it's not actually the, the basis of Buddhahood is wisdom Buddha means one who knows or one who is awake but either way one who who sees clearly but the difference between a, someone who strives to become a Buddha and someone who just strives to become enlightened is uh, the Buddha does it who puts aside their own enlightenment for the benefit of all beings so that's um, a fully enlightened Buddha is someone who has um, put aside their own benefit so they have undertaken to really understand the teaching without the help of others to be able to be uh, become a Buddha in a time when there is no Buddha and therefore be of maximum benefit to all beings which uh, requires compassion compassion is the um, reaction to someone's suffering or the relation to someone's suffering um, love is 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 uh, similar but technically in relation to a person's happiness so if you wish someone to be happy, that's love. If you wish someone to not suffer, that's compassion. That's why they're so similar. That's why love is the basis for compassion. They're very, very similar. Anyway, let's jump right into questions. I don't, don't, don't deal with love too much. I know everyone loves to talk about it, and a lot of these quotes are about love, but it seems we get them again and again. Really, love is not all you need, and it's not the focus. So, focus on thank you. Focus on mindfulness and wisdom. So, we'll go back as far as we can here. First of all, let's look at some comments. Make sure we're actually broadcasting, people are actually hearing us. 
Okay, questions. I'm only going to go through questions that are actually using the proper notation. There's a lot to go through. When I see things clearly, I notice patterns. Is this samsara? Samsara means wandering on or transmigration and so on. Samsara. Sara means... Um, actually, I'm not sure exactly. Samsara. It means to wander. Um, but samsara is, is everything we experience. All sankharas are included in the understanding of what's samsara. Um, the, the classic quote is samsaritam. Chattunang, chattunang re satchanang yathabhutang adasana. Sangsaritang digamatanang tasutasvevajatisu. For not seeing the Four Noble Truths, sangsaritang, sangsaritang. Sangsaritang is a verb, the verb form. Digamatanang, one wanders on, I have wandered on, and Digamatanang means for long, for a long time. Tasutasveva jati, so from this, from that life to the, to, from one life to the next. So that's what sangsara is. Sangsara is this wandering on because we don't see the noble truths. We cling and we cling again and again and again and we cling, and as a result, we're born again and again. Why is metta considered a samatha practice when it focuses on many things? Well, it's not about one thing or many things. It's about reality or concept. Metta is focused on a concept. I mean, the purpose of metta is not to gain wisdom. The purpose of metta is to cultivate uh, love. Samatha just makes you calm, and that's what metta does. Metta makes, makes you calm and focused and happy. It doesn't lead to understanding about reality because it's not focused on reality. It's focused on beings, which are concepts. Beings don't exist. Beings are just a, a thought in our mind. You look at something and you say, that's a being there. You think about yourself and you think, oh, I'm a being. But actually the being is not real. All that's real is experiences. Why is a big stuck on samsara if you have children? Sounds like something I said, no? Did I said that when you have children, you're it's big stuck, big stuck, really stuck. Well, I mean, technically, having children is just an experience, and you can do it without getting attached to it, but. Doesn't usually happen that way, right? Even if you are unattached, I mean, it's a lot of work and effort, and it takes away from your spiritual practice to have to have to deal with with beings who there's no there's no reassurance 
that they're going to be spiritually inclined and for the most part they're not spiritually inclined because they don't understand spirituality so as a result you're dealing with people who have craving and intense craving and intense wickedness at times you have to deal with that you have to live with that you have to love that which is difficult in children is a very very difficult thing so I have a one student a long time student from Thailand and she got pregnant in between meditation courses she was even on birth control but um, she got pregnant and then she found out her husband was cheating on her and had found a new wife and, and wanted to divorce and so she was a very very powerful meditator a very strong meditator and um, she had to, she had to raise this child and you know she's had to go through a lot she's done it mindfully and she's done quite well I think but she had to deal with a child who was very much her own being you know and it's, uh, it's a lot of work What are your thoughts on true kindness? It seems to be taken as unkind if you point out a mistake. And some people I'm around. Also, kindness seems to be based heavily on sugarcoating and not being direct and upfront when there's discrepancy or mistake. The true nature of being kind. Well, you know, there is tough love. But you know, Buddhism isn't about solving other people's problems per se. I mean, you can't really fix other people. And as you see, the, the attempt to try and fix other people turns out to be uh, have a negative consequence. As people react badly to your supposed kindness. And kindness is one of these things like love and compassion. It's not enough. And it's not always going to solve your problems. It's certainly not going to solve all your problems. Or solve other, other people's problems. If you have compassion for someone else, doesn't mean you're going to fix their problems. Wisdom is really what we, what we are focused on and what we require. If you have wisdom, then you're able to see things much clear, more clearly. You don't get caught up. In trying to fix your own problems or other people's problems, you learn to let go and not see things as a problem, but see them as reality. See them as something to be left alone rather than fixed and controlled. And so on. I don't know, it doesn't really answer your question, I suppose, but uh, I wouldn't be too inclined to try to fix other people's problems or... or um, do anything that might upset them. Buddha said you should upset people at times, but you have to know when to upset people. There are times when it's proper to, for someone to be upset, but you know, it would have to be something that's beneficial to them and true. It's beneficial and true, but upsetting. This is a dangerous one. It's easy to hurt someone by upsetting them. Easier to do harm to someone. It's more likely that if you're upsetting them, you're going to do them harm, no matter if you're good intent, well intentioned or not. You have to be careful with that one. 
something is uh, pleasant and is true and, and beneficial and pleasant, well then there's no question. If it's something that they'll take to heart and it will be pleasing to them, then go ahead. If you call the other hand, it's pleasing but not beneficial, and don't don't go there either. Is placation, sugar coating, and or babying babying actually beneficial or true kindness? Can be. If you give people confidence, if you give people, if you calm people down. You know, there was this guy once, Sariputta went to, I think we've done this in the Dhammapada, this executioner. And Sariputta came to teach him the Dhamma and he wasn't able to listen. So Sariputta asked him, well, did you, did you, uh, you know, did you kill all these beings on your own? Or were, you know, were you, were you told to do it? And he was the executioner, the state executioner. So he said, well, I didn't do it on my own accord. I did it because I was told to do it. And Sari Buddha said, well, then, then what blame do you have? And because he he actually tricked him, I mean, this is a story in the Dhammapada, whether it's actually truth or actually happened or not. But but supposing it did happen, it was a means of not lying to him, but, you know, asking him this question to sort of comfort him, even erroneously, to the point, because he couldn't even listen to what Sari Buddha was saying. He was too concerned. Which happens, you know, if good people come to teach you and all you can do is think about what, a, what an awful person you are. You think about the bad things you've done and feel guilty when people start talking about good things. Um, so he placated him and as a result he was able to listen and able to, uh, able to cultivate wholesome mind states while listening to the Sari Buddha's teaching. So yes, I think just because you're right doesn't mean it's right to, to make it, to, to, to force your opinions on others. Right? And just because what you say is true doesn't mean it's going to be of any benefit. If it's true but not beneficial, then why would you say it? What good is it? It's a question. On the hand, you, you don't want to say things that are not true. But... Uh, just because it's true doesn't mean you, you know, if it's true and then you end up upsetting people through it and, and making them angry and making them hate you, in what way was that any good? So yes, definitely, it's not enough to be right. It's enough to be right, but if you want to explain to other people, convince other people you're right, well, there's more to it than just being right. Okay, now lots of comments. I'm just going to scroll down to any questions. Don't see any. Now here's some new ones. If you gain insight and maturity as you meditate about life, then when someone maybe swears at you in anger and instead of responding with anger you have compassion for them does this lead you to never being angry or never expressing anger as it would either not arise or arise vanish before being expressed well i'd encourage you if you haven't already to read my booklet on how to meditate and come and meditate with us. 
and then you'll you'll see what happens. You'll come to uh, come to understand anger in in a new light. You'll see it more clearly, and you'll see what happens when you meditate. As you meditate, you don't meditate about life. You meditate about anger, for example. You meditate about your emotions, you meditate about the things that make you angry, and you come to see that they're not worth getting angry about. As a result, compassion arises naturally. I mean, it's not that we directly cultivate compassion, but, but indirectly compassion arises, because you can see suffering, you see the cause of suffering, you see that people are causing themselves suffering. You know how awful it is to suffer, it's because you've seen it for yourself. So yes, the anger does not arise, or if it arises, you're able to see it as angry anger and, and, and not, not follow it. So yes, sort of the answer to your question is yes, simply. Do, al do we always note stepping right, stepping left, and walking meditation, or can we change it to note as lifting, stepping, placing? Well, you can certainly change it. Um, I mean, normally in a meditation course, we go through a series of steps. Stepping right, stepping left is just the first step. So every day we'll give you a new exercise and over the course of the, of the, the course, um, you go through several different, we make it more complex. But that's usually something we do in a meditation course I give you uh, after, after you've practiced intensively. Can you explain non-self? Does it mean we shouldn't be saying me, I, mine because things are important? No, that's not what it means. Non-self is a characteristic of things. Everything you experience, I mean, you have to, in order to understand non-self, you have to switch the way you look at the world from an, a, a universe of things to a universe of experiences. So the basis of experiences is the basis of reality is experience and experiences are non-self every aspect of experience the physical aspect the mental aspect are not self means first of all they don't have a self they don't have an entity that exists from moment to moment so when you when you look at an object that object the thing of the object doesn't exist from moment to moment what exists is experiences moment after moment I mean, it's just a way of looking at reality. Those experiences are non-self. They're also not controllable, is the other thing, is that you, you, can't, um, you can't force things to be the way you want, to stay, to go, that kind of thing. There's no, there's no master, controller, lord over these things. So it's, I mean, it's all about, non-self is all about letting go of the idea of self letting go of the idea that things are, exist as things, objects, so the, the things in our lives actually exist, including our, our entity, the being, and also letting go of control, stopping to try to control things. And uh, the, the point being that that's a, a large part of what causes us suffering, our, our trying to control and possess things not being able to see that what's re real about 
the experience about the object as the experience that arises and ceases and is very much based on causes and conditions. Would it be fair to say beneficial results are a consequence of some past good done? And the benefit of being in the company of wise beings, for example. Um, I mean, it's much more complicated than that. What we can say is that being in the company of wise beings, etc., anything that's good, if it has a result, will have a good result. That's much more proper way of saying it. Rather than trying to interpret what we have now, it's much more important to understand uh, the, the results of what we do. If we do do something good, good will come from it, if anything comes from it. And if we do something bad, well, if anything comes from that, it'll be bad. That's the point, really. And it's, it's, it's on the basis of momentary experiences. So if you get angry, well, that's a moment of bad karma. It's going to have a bad result. It's going to affect you negatively, affect your life negatively in a small way. And moment after moment, of course, it builds up. Karma only dependent on intention, or can mindlessness or ignorance, etc., affect it too? Um, yeah, it's not about exactly intention, it's more the mind state. Jaitana doesn't really mean intention so much as it means um, the state of mind when you respond to something. And it's momentary, so you can't think in the large terms like someone talks to you, you get angry. Well, what's really going on there is that moment after moment. And each moment there's a decision being made. Each experience of hearing, of seeing, of smelling, of tasting, feeling, of thinking is uh, has a reaction associated with it. And that reaction is karma. Momentary. And karma is every, every moment. The movement well and your sleep patterns will return to a more peaceful match with your surroundings. No, it's interesting that this time is still the only time that I actually feel drowsy. I think it's very hot up here as well. Um, but yeah, the move is still ongoing. I won't be moved out of here until Tuesday, Wednesday. Wednesday, of course, is the start of the rains. So Tuesday will be the full moon, I think. And Wednesday is the rains, if I'm not mistaken. So Wednesday is the last day I can officially move into the new location to start the three-month rains retreat. Is it okay to feel pity for someone or express it? Yeah, I mean, it's just a word. The question is, are you sad? Are you upset? Or do you just incline to help them? If you really get upset about it, then it's a problem. But if you're just inclined to help, well, that's fine. It's great to help people. It's a part of your own practice. Helping others, you help yourself. Helping yourself, you help others. Understanding you can't control things. How far should one take this? To do nothing and settle for miserable situations or to work towards a better life you need to do things to make you feel good no, much more the former if you're tr just trying to feel good you're going to become addicted to feeling good that's how addiction works so striving to do things that make you feel good is 
a recipe for disaster, for failure. Uh, once you learn to let go and, and not try to control things, you feel much more happy, much more at peace, much more natural, much more free from suffering. You always have a positive outlook on life. Uh, you should have a, a, a wise outlook on life. If you always have a positive, it's it's just as ignorant as if you always have a negative output outlook. It's not real. It's not realistic. As realistic is probably the best way. If you have a positive outlook, then you're you're always um, aiming for for good things to happen. And when they don't, you're unable to process them. You tend to ignore them. It can make you happy for a while, but it doesn't help you understand reality. It doesn't help you let go. It just leads to more clinging. I suppose to some extent, to some extent it is good to see the positive and not worry so much about the negative, like in other people. You know, like Pollyanna is a good this story. Pollyanna, um, she does all sorts of good things and just doesn't see the evil. You know, discards the evil in people and just only looks at the good in people, which I think is I think is fairly kosher and you know, from a Buddhist point of view. I mean, it's that's I think a good thing in in principle. Um, and it's important not to miss. I think perhaps the problem with Pollyanna is she couldn't see her didn't really understand the evil in people, but I think to some extent we have to put it aside. If someone does a bad thing, they're not obsessed about it. You know? If you focus on good in that sense, then you're, the people around you are, are inclined to do good because they, they see that that's what you're focused on. You know, focus on good and sort of brushing aside the evil allows people the opportunity to change, to become better people. I think to some extent that's important. To some extent, you can't ignore evil entirely, but I think in that in that sense, focusing on good can be beneficial. So people don't feel guilty and awful about the bad things they've done, and they're able to move on and become better. Focus on the good. Lots of questions from just a few people. Oh no, quite a few people. Thanks, everyone. Muddy is back. Muddy, Muddy is an old meditator. Lots of old, old timers coming back. Good to see. And the hangout, we have 37 viewers, which is down from Sunday evening. Well, thanks for tuning in. Okay, we have a question. Tita, you have lots of questions, which is somewhat troublesome because the more you meditate, the fewer questions you should have. 
So I'm hoping that this is a temporary thing and you're not becoming addicted to asking questions. They're good questions, actually, the ones you've been asking. I'm happy about them. How should you approach things that people may say to you? Should you approach it being a bit skeptical or... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's proper. It's proper to examine. I think rather than skeptical, the problem with skeptical is it often has the implication of doubting. You don't have to doubt things people say. You have to be aware of simply believing people. You have to examine things with a neutral mind. I think that's a very proper outlook. Don't just believe any anything anyone tells you. But it doesn't mean you have to immediately doubt. You know, doubt would be, say, 50-50. You give someone 50-50, that's neutral. I think that's where we should start. If you doubt, you, it's less than 50. You know, there should be a reason for that. It shouldn't be your default. You shouldn't start at zero and say, you have to prove it to me. Someone says something, you say, oh yeah, prove it. No, you should say, okay, 50-50, and then you examine it and you think, well, that's unlikely for this reason. And then you start to doubt it. Or you say, oh, that's likely. There's reason to believe that. Give it greater than 50. I think that's a good outlook. Doesn't It isn't foolproof. You can still doubt things that turn out to be true, but it's important to start with a neutral sort of uh, unbiased approach not blindly believing anything, but also not simply doubting it for the sake of doubting everything. Just take everything at face value and then examine it. person says to you, aliens landed in the backyard, you shouldn't immediately dismiss it. You should say, you should be able to think of a, of a case where that might be true and then start to examine how unlikely it is and then say, mm, it's unlikely that that really happened, but, you know, we can investigate. If one is able, should one go on Buddhist pilgrimage to at least Lumbini, Bodhgaya, Saranat, and Kusinara? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's not necessary in your Buddhist practice, but it's a great thing. I've been three times. Can't say I wouldn't go again if I had the chance. It'd be great. Should put together a, a, a pilgrimage of our our online community. Get everyone to meet up in Bodh Gaya. Lots of questions tonight well, because we didn't broadcast yesterday. More questions. How much effect with an E does the culture one lives in affect you in the practice of the precepts? Not much. I'd say you have to adapt and mm, sort of reinterpret maybe some of the precepts or interpret some of the precepts anyway 
wouldn't say you necessarily want to reinterpret them in the sense of you know, bending them too far, but the precepts aren't that difficult. I mean, not riding in a vehicle is a tough one. We're not allowed really to ride in a vehicle. But um, it was a different time then, so now we live so far apart and there's an expectation of being able to travel very quickly as, as a general rule, so it wasn't like that in the time of the Buddha. Not to say that that's proper to ride in a vehicle, but we do. It's hard to find monks. There are some monks, I think, in Sri Lanka and Burma who won't ride in vehicles. I've heard of monks in Sri Lanka who won't. It's very rare, though. When you went on Buddhist pilgrimage, did you find it very spiritual and uplifting? How would you describe it as far as your feelings at the time? It's great. I mean, it really makes things real. It's great when you've studied the Buddha's teaching and you've read all these stories and just read about the Buddha's life, and then you actually get to go and see it. It, it really makes it real, uh, especially unless you live in India or Sri Lanka. Or even if you live in a Buddhist country that's unlike India, like Thailand, um, living in Thailand as a Buddhist and learning all these things, it's just not Thai. And it's, it's, it's not based on the Thai culture. Thai culture is very, very dissimilar to Indian culture. So there's something missing, you know, the, the sort of the, the location. And it's not that the teachings are any different, it's just that the flavor, the the sort of the, the environment, the surroundings, what's going on, it, it only really makes sense when you go to India and, and see where the Buddha lived, and sort of follow in the Buddha's footsteps. That's one important thing that came to me, but it actually came more when I left the Buddhist holy sites because the holy sites are, are, are just big tourist traps, really. I mean, they're, they're very commercialized. They've gotten better more organized anyway, but um, they're not really India as the Buddha would have seen it. And, but when you leave this, when you go up into the countryside somewhere that's not Buddhist, talk to the locals and make an effort to really get into the culture, then you really feel it. It feels much more Buddhist then. Um, but the other thing about the holy sites is just the awe that you get from thinking the Buddha sat here, the Buddha walked here, the Buddha was born here, this kind of thing. That's a great thing, especially if you're a devout Buddhist. For me, it was always great to go and think, wow, this was really it. This was where it happened. It's kind of like uh, fans who go to go to Graceland or that kind of thing, Elvis fans. Is it guaranteed that meditation will change you in some way? Or can another factor block that probability out? Well, everything changes you. But I think what you mean is in, in the way expected or in the way that we're hoping to change. Is, is meditation necessarily going to enlighten you? Kind of thing? Yes, there are factors that can block you. Definitely. I think, I think it's rare for there to be factors to block you. It's much more common for people to think and to worry that they're being blocked in their practice and they're just not able to see the benefits, that's very common. 
very hard to see the benefits in the beginning, especially if you're not practicing intensively. If you do an intensive course, much easier to see the benefits and the changes. Um, but if you're doing it non-intensively, like a daily practice, very slow and, and easy to forget any benefits. You forget from day to day. You, know, you, you, you minimalize the benefits that you get. One day you'll be like, wow, this really is changing me. And then the next day you'll be like, this meditation is doing nothing for me. Totally having minimalized or even forgotten the benefit that you got the day before. We're like that. We do this. We have selective memory. We have poor memory. Our memory is tainted by our judgments, that kind of thing. So um, it's much more common for people to think it's not changing them, to not be able to see the changes. The other thing is, if it's you changing, you know how how can you how can you really compare? You're always like this. It's just that this maybe changes. It's like you can't see when your face is dirty. Is the analogy? But other people see it. So a good way to judge is how other people treat you, how your how your interactions with others are. If you find your relationships improving, your ability to deal with other people improving, the way people look at you. If that's changing, I mean, actually, in the beginning, it can be somewhat disconcerting for people who are close to you, and, and it's quite common for people to react negatively to meditators who are actually benefiting from meditation. They're becoming less engaged, less attached, and as a result, everyone else gets upset because they're still very much attached. Um, so, yeah, but there will be that sort of change in... in uh, your interactions with other people in the environment and that kind of thing. Your work, and yourself more efficient, more patient, that kind of thing. But yeah, there are things that can block you. If you, if you have a perverse view, um, if you have a lot of bad karma, and you know, it's, it's, it happens, but it's usually temporary, and it just usually just makes it more difficult. But for most of us, it's not like most of it, meditation is just difficult, period. You know? And that doesn't mean you've got some problem and there's something blocking you. It just means meditation is difficult. It's meant to be. It's meant to challenge you. It wouldn't be enlightening if it didn't challenge you. When I see things clearly, I see patterns in things. Is this too much analysis? No, seeing them is not. Analyzing them is. If you're looking for patterns or if you're thinking about them and investigating them, that's a problem. If you see a pattern, well, that's an experience. You say thinking, thinking, or you could say seeing, seeing, knowing, knowing, that kind of thing. The patterns, you will see patterns. Just don't go looking for them or, or trying to find them. That's not really the goal. But it will be, it will, it will be a, a part of the goal to see them, but that seeing will come by itself. You're looking for them, it's not really what we're looking for. It's going too far. Should Buddhists have compassion for racial, racist people or just ignore them? Um, yeah, to some extent, compassion. I mean, compassion is great to help you see the truth of the situation that they're the ones that are going to suffer from being racist. But equanimity is also useful to not get upset. Equanimity allows you to see that, well, this is the way it goes. People do bad things, they get bad results. It's not something we have to worry about or try to fix. It's just the nature of reality. 
do bad things, get bad results, suffer. Do more bad things, get more bad results, suffer again and again and again. I mean, why get upset about it? That's equanimity. Firm belief in permanent soul or nihilism could block vipassana progress. Yeah. Perverse wrong view. But it has to be somewhat pernicious. There's lots of views that can get in your way. But not just views. I mean, if someone's a very angry person, that can get in the way. Someone's done a lot of evil deeds that can really prevent them. Reviews is probably the big one. Any of the five hindrances will, though. Any of the five hindrances will get in your way. And if you're not able to be mindful, you're not able to deal with them, to come to terms with them, they'll prevent you. I had an encounter when I was younger in a haunted historic battlefield with a ghost. It was very much like blending in with nature. After the formation ceased, is this a hungry, hungry ghost? Someone's on a phone, I think. Is this a Hungary ghost? A ghost from Hungary? Someone's using autocorrect. He vanished into nature. Um, sounds like it. And whatever it is, it's impermanent suffering and non-self. It's not worth clinging to in its past. I don't worry too much about it. It's interesting to see things. It's interesting to make, to meet with things that are open your mind and allow you to see that there's much more to reality than what meets the eyes. Recently started to become more drowsy and drop my head over and over while meditating. No matter how many times I repeat drowsy or sleepy. I do walking meditation beforehand. In the past, this usually wouldn't happen. You don't stop it. Just try to be mindful of it. You know, there are ways to deal with it get up and walk, uh, when it happens, um, splash water on your face, do some chanting. It'll help, but um, it's a temporary condition that comes when you begin to meditate. And you say it, it's recently cropped up, but it's a sign that there's some change going on and there's some conflict in terms of your state of mind and in the meditation practice so uh, in intensive practice it would work itself out in a day or two but in daily life it may be something you just have to deal with depending on your your work situation now probably would get better if you were to do a regular practice say with a teacher and and to go through you could go through one of our online our online course because um, i've had people who through the online course have seen it change and, and get better just by doing daily practice. But usually that's temporary. I mean, as you can see, it's something that didn't happen before. Well, that means it's gonna last, you know, it's not gonna last forever. So you just be mindful of it when it is. It's the challenge, you know, it's part of the challenge. It's part of the challenge that is meditation. 
try to stop it if you didn't have any of these challenges, what would you learn? What good would it be to you? You'd just be comfortable. You don't get much from comfortable, not usually. It doesn't pull you out of your comfort zone if it doesn't force you to re-examine the way you look at things and to change and to adapt and to build new and better habits, then how can it be enlightening? So just take it as a challenge. Okay, enough questions, that's too many. You can't answer so many questions in one night. There's got to be a rule against that or something. Enough questions for one night. No, good questions, thank you. But uh, I would encourage you all to meditate and uh, see if some of, the, some of the answers come through meditation. That's not quite fair. Good questions, thank you for good questions. But enough for tonight. Save some for tomorrow. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night, everyone.